0: Our reading is from the book of James again this morning. James chapter five. We are nearly at the end of the letter. It's page one two one six in your pew Bibles. Page one two one six James chapter five, and we'll read verses thirteen to 18 it's the same passage that we read last week Uh, our our second week in these verses and our second last week in the book of James James chapter 5 verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. and the earth produced its crops. And we'll read to the end of the letter. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and if someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Amen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And may we be found to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our uh, second week in these verses, and uh, last week was a sermon that you wanted to preach. It was the keeping the main thing, the main thing sermon. It was a sermon on the priority and on the power of prayer. That's the sermon that you want to preach. But I purposely left out the difficult questions that this passage raises. And I don't want to run away from those questions. I think it's important that we face them, that we ask them, and that we seek to find answers. So our question last week was an easy one, an easy one to answer. The question was, when should Christians pray? And the answer is, always, in every circumstance of life, in the highs, in the lows, and in the in-betweens, Christians should pray. James says, is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So if you're sad this morning, pray. If you're happy this morning, then use your mouth for the highest form of prayer that is available. Use your mouth to praise Him for the happiness that you are. Experiencing? Easy to answer, but it can be harder to live, can't it? Julia Marsden says it can be all too easy to forget God in the good times and to give up on God in the bad times. But we are exhorted in all of Scripture, in all times, in all circumstances, that we ought to be people. Prayer. So that was the easy question, and that, I think, is the main thrust of this passage, of these verses, the, the priority of prayer and the power of prayer. But there are other questions which are very important, because if we get the answer to these questions wrong, we can find ourselves in all sorts of trouble. We can get ourselves into a real mess. We are to pray when we're happy, we are to pray when we're sad, but we're also to seek prayer when we are ill. Verse 14, is any one of you sick? he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up, If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. That sounds very simple, doesn't it? Very simple. But what happens when we do pray? And when the sick person doesn't get well? When the Lord doesn't raise them up? When they stay sick? Or when they die? What do we do with James chapter 5 verse 15? Let me take this opportunity to thank you for your prayers for me I think most people know now but I had good scan results recently so thank you for your prayers I'm back in six months time for my next scan and this seems like a fitting time and place to thank you for your prayers One of the things that happens when you have a diagnosis like the one that I have, when you have a a brain tumour, is that you hear about lots of other people who have the same diagnosis, the same, are going through similar uh, circumstances. And I have a wee list of people that I now pray for. And uh, I have a friend who's in pastoral ministry. I don't see him all that often. I see him maybe twice a year, thereabouts, at conferences. And um, he had a member in his church who was diagnosed with a brain tumour. I knew his name. I knew one or two details about his life. And I I committed to pray for him. And every time I saw my friend, I would ask him for a wee update. He would give me a wee update and I would keep praying. And then one conference, maybe a year ago now, I I, I sought him out to find how how this young guy was doing, and my friend said to me, oh, he, he died, but before he died, he and his wife left and went to a church who told him that he was guaranteed his healing, and now he's died. I'm the one that's left trying to mop up the mess with the family that he has left behind. I didn't have an opportunity to ask him what he meant by mopping up the mess that was left behind, but I could take a guess. It could be the guilt. You know, we, we prayed, but maybe we didn't pray with enough faith. Is that why? Is that why he didn't get better? Is that why he died? Did we pray with level six faith? When what we needed was level nine faith in order for him to be healed? Maybe it was the guilt. Or maybe it was anger or disillusionment. Didn't God promise he would be healed? Look at James chapter 5, verse 15. We followed. The instructions. We played our parts, but God didn't come through. Maybe it was anger or disillusion that had to be worked through. And these things are relevant for us as a fellowship, as a family of faith. I thank you for your prayers for me. I thank the Lord that I am well enough to stand here today and to preach to be with Deborah and the girls. I thank you. I I am so thankful for all of these things. But as you well know, we have prayed for many people in my time here, 10 years now, and some of those people have been made well. They have been healed. They have been restored, and we give thanks to the Lord for that. But other people have not been healed, and some of them have died. We come in on a Sunday morning and we look to certain pews, certain places, and we feel in here it's not right that they're not here, that they're not sitting on their pews. We miss them. We prayed for them, and yet they died. Should we feel guilty? Was it our lack of faith? No. No. A thousand nodes. Our faith may have been as small as a mustard seed, but our faith was placed in Jesus, and that's what matters. Faith as small as a mustard seed, when it's placed in the right person, is strong enough to move mountains. So was it God who failed to fulfill his promises to his people? A million nodes. It is impossible for God to lie. It would be against His very nature. So be free from guilt, from anger, from despair, from disillusionment. It's none of these things. You can understand why people might believe that healing is guaranteed, I suppose if you read the likes of James chapter five, verse 15, without its context. If you rip it out of James, if you rip it out of the Bible and just read it in isolation, you can understand that. But that's not how we find this verse. And we must take it and put it back into the letter of James and put it back into the canon of Scripture. And there we will be equipped to understand its meaning. all right. So let's put it back where it belongs. Let's put it back into the Bible. Let's put it back into Scripture. We ought to know as soon as we read this verse that healing cannot be promised in every circumstance because we know the rest of Scripture. We know that the Apostle Paul told his young prodigy, Timothy, to take a little wine for his stomach because of his frequent illnesses. He didn't say to Timothy, why haven't you got your healing yet? Haven't you prayed? Haven't you got the elders over? We know that the Apostle Paul says in his second letter to Timothy that he had to leave his friend, friend, Trophimus, sick in Miletus. I'm sure if Paul could have healed him, he would have healed him. And Paul himself had a thorn in his flesh, probably a physical ailment, possibly relating to his eyesight, but certainly something that caused him a great deal of distress. Three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we could, if we wanted, add to that the history of the church. Many of the, I was going to say the greatest men and women of God, maybe given the children's talk, I shouldn't use that that term, but many men and women that God has used in wonderful ways have been beset with ill health or physical ailments or, or mental ill health. They have, they have carried the weight of these wounds through their Christian lives, and the Lord has used them in their weakness to display something of His greatness. So, putting it back into the context of Scripture, we see what it cannot possibly mean put it back into the context of James, the letter itself. We remember how James opened his letter. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So trials and tribulations have their place in the purposes of God, for now at least, to reveal to us our need of God. And to reveal to us the sufficiency of the grace of God to meet those needs. To lead us to Jesus, who died that we might live unto God, and to deepen our love for and our fellowship with Him. To bring us to maturity, to make us useful in the service of Christ. Trials and tribulations of all kinds have their place in the economy of God, for now. And as we come to the last chapter of James, and this is where it does become a bit challenging, this is where we roll up our sleeves, we ought to notice that this sickness is different from most sicknesses. And that James seems to see this sickness as tied in some way to their sin. So we've spent a long time in James now. We know that the, the Christians to whom he writes are in a real mess. Their relationships with each other are in a real mess. And their relationships with the Lord are in a real mess. Everything has gone awry. They are fighting with each other. They are bickering. They are gossiping. Gossiping. Is that right? They are wounding. They are withholding forgiveness from each other. And they are refusing to honor God, the God who has been so faithful to them. Things are really bad. And James clearly believes that for some of them, at least, God is holding back health in the way in which He held back the rain in the days of Elijah. He's holding back health until they change the way that they are living their lives, until they repent, until they turn around, until they draw near to God again. And when they draw near to God again, He will draw near to them when they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they confess their sins to each other and ask for forgiveness, then the Lord will stop withholding health. They will be restored to health and to right relationship with each other and with God. That's not normal. We can think of the the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Corinth, another church that was in a terrible, terrible mess. He speaks of the Lord's table, and he says to them, their selfishness around the table of the Lord has seen, or is the reason why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So, it's there in the writings of the Apostle Paul as well, but it's not normal And we remember the Lord Jesus rebuking his disciples. He saw the man born blind, and they assumed that he was born blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents. Jesus rebukes them for that. Normally, our sickness is just a fruit, a byproduct of living in a world that has been broken by sin in a general sense. But that's not the case as we come to the end of the letter of James. James thinks that for some of these believers, at least, that it is their sin which has seen God withholding health from them. And so he says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So I wonder if you have wronged anyone in this family of faith or if you have withheld forgiveness, if you have clung on to a sense of um, being wronged, if you've held on to a grudge, Maybe today is the day t- to let that go or to go and ask for forgiveness. The second thing I think we ought to notice is in the nature of the prayer itself. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. What does that phrase mean? in the name of the Lord. What do we mean when we finish our prayers with, in Jesus' name? It's the same thing. I think we mean two things when we say, in Jesus' name, in the name of the Lord. Firstly, we mean that we can only offer our prayer to God with any confidence that He will hear that prayer and receive that prayer and respond to that prayer because we offer it to God not on the basis of all the good things that we have done, but on the basis of all of the good things that Jesus has done and on the basis of His perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. That's the first thing we mean, isn't it? When we say in Jesus' name, not in my name, but in his name. The second thing we mean is this. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And so Jesus says in John's gospel, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus did not say, ask for anything and I will do it. That's why the car park isn't full of Ferraris. He didn't say, ask for anything and I will do it. He said, ask for anything in my name and I will do it. In the context of telling his people how to be in right relationship, he said, ask for anything in my name and I will do it. James didn't say, if someone is sick, get some oil, say a prayer, and the sick person will be made well. He said they should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. In every prayer that we pray, we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and the wisdom of God, as we say, in Jesus' name. We say, yet not my will, Father, but thine be done. Because we acknowledge that there may be things that he sees that we cannot see, things that he understands that we cannot understand. We acknowledge that what seems so right to us might be wrong. We acknowledge how limited our perspective and our understanding is. He sees infinitely more than we see. All of eternity lies before him with crystal clarity. We, like young children, struggle to understand anything beyond how we feel and what we see right now. But we do affirm, of course, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We do affirm that he is able to do above all that we ask or imagine. We do remember the eagerness of the Lord to receive and to respond to the prayers of his people. We shudder as we hear the words of James, you have not because you ask not. And so we still pray, and we still plead earnestly, sincerely, like the persistent widow. But every time we pray, we remember that he sees what we cannot see. He understands what we cannot understand. And so we say in Jesus' name, yet not my will, Father, but thine be done. So that would seem to be a fitting place to end the sermon. But there is one more question that I think we ought to look at, and I will... Endeavour to look at it as quickly as I can, and that is the significance of the oil. As Baptists, we have a, a an inbuilt suspicion when it comes to physical things. We don't have loads of statues. Uh, we don't have incense. Uh, we don't have the sound of of bells or any of these kinds of things. We have this inbuilt suspicion when it comes to to things that we can see or touch or smell or hear. And I think that suspicion actually saves us from a lot of dangers that are that are out there. But what are we to make of the oil? Are, are, are we missing out? We don't usually use oil. When I go and pray with someone who is unwell, I, I wouldn't normally use oil. I have done on occasion, but it's rare. So what is the oil for? Is it mandatory? Is it beneficial? Are we missing out? What's the significance of the oil? Well, it could be, firstly, that the oil is just the medicine of the day. In those days, oil was used by physicians, by doctors, to soothe and to cleanse those who were sick. We affirm that God can heal without oil, Just as he can heal without modern medicine. But we give thanks that God is often pleased to use means to bring healing and restoration, isn't he? We give thanks for doctors and nurses and scanners and medicine. I had radiotherapy, chemotherapy, uh, surgery. I get my prescription, I take it to the chemist, I take my pills but I see the hand of God and the goodness of God working in and through them all. I affirm with James that every good and perfect gift comes from above. He has given us the the ability to work out how the body works, to a certain degree anyway, and uh, to, 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 to bring in all these wonderful medicines and the NHS and scanners and blood tests, and all these things, as frustrating as they can be at times, they are wonderful gifts, and I see the hand of God working in and through them, and I give thanks to God for all of them. I don't accept that uh, you have, you know, modern medical science in one corner of the boxing ring and God in the other, that they are against each other somehow. I don't see any sense in in, in, in looking at it like that at all it makes no sense to me so I give thanks for medicine and for medics but I give ultimate praise to God and there may be a wee pointer to the fact that God is not against the use of of the medicine of the day and in the using of this oil Well, it could be a symbolic way of pointing to the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who brings something of the kingdom of God into this broken world. He ministers something of the presence and the power of Jesus to those who draw near. When the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, when the king comes again, to make all things new, there will be no more sickness. And healing from God is a tiny glimpse of that great day, of that glorious reality. When all things are made new, when the old order of things is swept aside, when sickness goes, We get a glimpse of that, of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God as people are healed. And maybe there's a picture of that, of the the presence and the power of the Spirit in the oil that was used to anoint people as they lay on their sick beds, Or finally, it could be a way of assuring a person who's maybe too unwell to grasp exactly what's going on, that the church is there and that the Lord is there. Some commentators point to two healings of Jesus Jesus heals the man born blind with saliva and with mud and with touch. doesn't need to. He could just speak a word and the man would be healed. But he chooses to use saliva and mud and touch. The man can't see Jesus in a literal sense, but he can feel the hand of Jesus. And likewise, the other healing uh, the man who was unable to hear, the deaf man. Jesus spits onto his fingers and touches the man's tongue as a part of the healing. So he can't hear Jesus speak, but he feels the hand of Jesus and trusts that that hand will bring healing. The oil could be a means by which God assures the sick person that they are not alone as he brings his healing power to bear. I suppose we might say an aid to faith. I'm inclined to think that all of these things are true, and all of these things are valid. God uses means to bring His purposes to pass. His Spirit brings the presence and the power of Jesus to bear, and sometimes things that we can see and feel and taste and smell can be deeply helpful, even as Baptists, as we will remember in just a few minutes' time around the table of the Lord. And not to mention touch itself. Appropriate touch. A hug or the holding of a hand or the laying on of hands in their proper place can communicate something of the presence and love of God to those in need. And I think something of all of these things are pictured. As the leadership of the church on behalf of the church family as a whole, draws close to those who are ill, anoints with oil, and prays in the name of the Lord that they may be brought to health again. And of course, let me just say, we rejoice that even when that doesn't happen, when the person for whom we pray, when they're not healed, Their death is not the end. For those in the Lord Jesus Christ, death is simply the doorway to life in the fullness of the presence of the Lord. And we rejoice, of course, in that great and glorious reality. So I hope we see the desire of James in these verses. His desire is that his brothers and sisters live as a loving community of faith, that they honor each other and honor God above themselves, and that the healing, forgiving power of Jesus would be brought to bear as they head towards maturity in their life and in their service for the Lord. It's a great desire to have and a great prayer to pray for any Christian church. So let's bring that picture. Let's bring the heart's desire of James for the Christians to whom he writes, which actually includes us, to the Lord as we pray. Father, we thank you for the letter of James. What a great challenge those five verses are to us. We thank you for the love of James, the love that he had for you, and the love that he had for the believers to whom he wrote, his brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We thank you that he was grieved to see that which was wrong in their lives, their broken dysfunctional relationships with each other, and their broken dysfunctional relationships with you we thank you that he wrote to them assured of the truth that were they simply to draw near to you again that you would be found faithful to draw near to them were they to confess their sins to each other and repent then you would be pleased to heal and to restore and to revive. So we pray, loving Heavenly Father, that we would become that kind of church, that kind of community, that we would have those kinds of relationships, that we can confess our sins to each other, that we can forgive each other, that we can let go of grudges, that we can place each other's needs above our own, that we can love each other, and in so doing, that we can love and honor you, Father. We ask that this would be a place, that we would be a people in which you are pleased to work in wonderful ways, to do above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine, for our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and for the furtherance of the cause of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And so may we be a people of prayer, Father. In the highs and the lows and the in-betweens of life, may we be devoted to prayer. And in all of our prayers, Father, may it be our joy to say, that we bring these prayers to you, not in our name, but in the name of Jesus. May it be our joy to acknowledge that you know, that you understand, far beyond our ability to know or to understand. And so may we always pray with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, yet not my will, but yours be done. And in so doing, may we know the peace that passes understanding as we rest in the assurance of your unfailing love for your people. Love which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is in And through his name that we offer these our prayers. In Jesus' name. Amen.